0: Hello and welcome to the Frontier Markets podcast. I am your host Krish. The purpose of this podcast is to interview individuals doing exceptional and exciting work um, in Frontier Markets. I'm here today with Jamal from Mogul Ventures who has a storied career in terms of operating at the intersection of international capital markets and Mongolia. Um, I think he is the best person to Ask for introduction to himself. So, with that in mind, Jamal, hello. Um, Would you be able to share uh, a bit about a bit of a history of kind of like your background and uh, the narrative arc regarding yourself and the timeline of projects you've kind of worked on?
1: Uh, Thank you very much. And thank you for those kind words. Um, Where should I start? I should probably start at my birth year, which is meaningful. And it is uh, one of my lucky numbers. I was born in 1976 which basically means that as I was going through my late teenagehood, uh, we had uh, perestroika in Soviet Union. At the time, Mongolia was essentially a satellite state of uh, Soviet Russia. We were in a sovereign country, but uh, under very heavy political, uh, cultural and economic influence from Moscow at the time. So being born in 1976, I grew up uh, as a typical young citizen of a communist country, you know, wore their red uh, neck neck scarves and uh, was a young pioneer, etc. As um, Gorbachev's perestroika started uh, gaining momentum and the end of the Soviet era of the Warsaw Pact countries came to an end. That is where um, the world for me and the opportunities that were that were becoming available to me as opposed to to my sister and brother who are uh, nine and seven years older than me, respectively, you know, changed my life. I mean, to be honest, uh, when I was growing up as a young kid, um, you know, we just finished the World Cup. Right. Uh, And for context, uh, I believe it was 19. 86, when Argentina won the World Cup last time with Diego Maradona at helm, I was living in communist Mongolia as a 10-year-old kid. And at that time, I did not even dream of ever setting foot in America, uh, never mind uh, living and working as an entrepreneur and having a you know, very su- fairly successful Wall Street career. So, you know, just to give you a sense of perspective. Um, come early 1990s, um, there was, you know, the the Berlin Wall was taken down. Uh, the countries of the Warsaw Pact uh, had the opportunity to decide their own destinies. Mongolia as well. Mongolia was almost entirely economically uh, dependent on uh, Soviet Union, and um, you know the subsidies dis- uh, disappeared uh, overnight. And I remember, you know, standing in bread and vodka lines for two hours as a young kid when uh, the total economic collapse happened in Mongolia. But I was probably the second or third citizen of Mongolia. I'm not, I don't mean ethnic Mongolians because there were, there were ethnic Mongolians in the United States before us. But I was probably second or third Mongolian citizen to uh, enroll and attend university in the United States, and that is starting in 1994. I was probably one of the first mongolian citizens to graduate from american high school which i attended for two years in new delhi india 1992 to 94. so that kind of sets the stage for my life's journey uh and the incredible opportunities i've had in my life fantastic and
0: if we move on from 1994 to i think what is you know a 20 to 30 year period of um pretty impressive growth from the Mongolian economy as it's kind of opened up. Um, Would you be able to kind of share the narrative of both Mongolia's kind of like economic philosophy and trajectory, um, the opportunities that have emerged there, but then also the ways in which you've participated um, in shaping that and um, moving that forward? Mm
1: -hmm. So, um, generally speaking, you know, politics, economy culture, social aspects, they're all, you know, intertwined together, right? Uh, They're not completely independent sort of areas. So some things Mongolia got right, uh, mostly, and has been quite successful. Other things not so, and there has been a very steep learning curve. So I'll start from the more successful parts of Mongolia's story in the last 30 years, I suppose. Um, Because Mongolia was a sovereign country, um, we were spared several things that have proved out to be disastrous in the history of last 30 years. And most of it has to do with uh, conflicts on ethnic, religious, and political grounds. Um, Because we were a sovereign country, although we did have probably half a million uh, Soviet personnel in Mongolia at at times, mostly military uh, and various advisors, etc., they all left when Soviet Union collapsed. So we did not end up like many countries in Central Asia and the Caucasus with large populations of other ethnicities and large Russian-speaking populations. We also did not forget our language and culture. We retained it. We did lose our um, traditional script. A Cyrillic script was forced upon us in the 30s. So, you know, the country tried to revive that, but, you know, overnight, they would have taken a country with 100% literacy to almost 100% illiteracy if you try to try to change the script. Um, so I would say that is the most positive part of Mongolia's story in that we did not lose our cultural and linguistic identity. We did not lose our history and our sense of nation and self. Secondly, politically, we have been consistently Outside of Central European countries like, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, etc., we have been consistently the most successful liberal democracy of the, you know, for, former Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, particularly in our region, we are the most um, you know, Western-style democratic country in, within a 2,000-kilometer radius. Uh, we have had successful transfers of political power without any violence. You know, there have been some turmoils and uh, things of that nature. Uh, but successful transitions of power for the last 30 years. Uh, it is a very vibrant democracy that respects freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and all the freedoms that we take for granted in places like the United States and United Kingdom. So that makes Mongolia politically quite different and quite successful as a nation state over the course of last 30 years. And the last part is the economic part. Um, Mongolia certainly could have done better uh, economically. Um, the opportunities that opened up, you know, coming from the communist background, people were, had very little knowledge about how free markets work. People did not have education in terms of understanding how to set up businesses and operate them. I mean, people had to learn everything from scratch uh, is the bottom line of it. And, you know, my own biography partially reflects that. I'm a son of medical professionals. My father was a World Health Organization epidemiologist. My mother was a neonatologist. My sister was an orthodontist. I mean, you name it. Literally, we didn't have anyone with any kind of business sense in our uh, family. So when I moved to United States as an 18-year-old young man, uh, I originally came to study philosophy, but, you know, smart enough to realize that uh, a Mongolian kid with a philosophy degree would most likely be unemployed. <laughs> so I was smart enough to switch to business. Uh, and uh, I, I, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in Mark with a concentration in marketing. Um, I did not know... Aside from my friends from high school who also moved to the United States, I literally did not know a soul in the Western Hemisphere. I did not have a single relative, not a single rich uncle on Wall Street, right? So I didn't have anyone to really advise me on my career path. So, you know, graduating with a marketing degree, you know, I had learned to study some textbooks. I really did not have idea how the business world works and what kind of a business career should I should have. So it's kind of a microcosm of, what Mongolia faced in 1992, you had a state controlled economy, almost completely reliant on Soviet subsidies, everything collapses, now you have to figure it itself, uh, figure it out yourself, you're left on your own. Um, so it took some time for for the country to kind of get, get it organized. First, you had, you know, low level traders just literally carrying things on their backs, bringing imports into Mongolia so that at least the shelves weren't completely empty. And then, obviously, we had a bit of a robber baron stage where state assets were looted, as it happened in many places in, you know, uh, post-Soviet countries. Uh, And then starting in early 2000s, you started to see emergence of sort of more real, sustainable business entities. And these business entities were run by entrepreneurs with very little formal education, right? And then finally, now we are getting literally the first generation of professionally educated uh, managers and entrepreneurs uh, who don't have the baggage of the Soviet era, who don't have the uh, bad habits of corruption and nepotism and all of that stuff. So, you know, the, the economic path of Mongolia also uh, reflects the, um, the growing pains of a country uh, as you know as it tries to adapt to this you know open market uh, economy and again as opposed to co- countries of central europe who are very you know quickly welcome into the european family right and were offered all kinds of assistance uh, mongolia has both the fortune and misfortune of being sandwiched between just two countries who happen to be russia and china and uh, i can down the line, elaborate why it's both a fortune and misfortune. Interesting.
0: And one thing I want to narrow down on over there is from that first generation of entrepreneurs that came out after the privatisations. Um, are there any particular case studies that come to mind of um, individuals and companies that you feel serve as inspiration for yourself um, when it comes to looking at kind of like you know success stories? Um, within the Mongolian economy for someone who's, you know, building and investing in things much like yourself?
1: Um, There are certainly companies that uh, have been quite successful and were able to transition from sort of very opportunistic uh, players who capitalized on certain uh, frictions and inefficiencies in the Mongolian economy at the time to, you know, becoming, you know, Real entities that are doing fantastic things like, you know, renewable energy and, you know, substituted a lot of the imports that, you know, Mongolia used to have, but it's, it's a small country and, you know, literally I could, you know, count on the hands of my uh, fingers of my both hands, the number of companies that, you know, I would consider, you know, mature, modern style corporations. Um, But again, even with those companies, you know, I think it's a Turkish proverb that says there is no great wealth without a crime. <laughs> there is no great amount of speech without a lie. And unfortunately, this is very much true for all the countries who came out of communism. And uh, I think, you know, most success stories that are 100% of, um, you know, homegrown in Mongolia um, pro- probably had to compromise their values at some point in time <laughs> in order to to gain a, that critical advantage that allowed them to uh, generate excess capital and grow and expand and so on. Interesting. Um, if
0: we were to kind of like shift the question a bit, then instead of going more broadly within the economy, um, and we were just specifically to go to kind of like, what is your wheelhouse, which is um, the mining industry, uh, would you be able to share a kind of like high level... Um, landscape or map of how mining works in Mongolia and what the kind of unique opportunities you believe exist within that sector are?
1: Okay. So let's look at uh, sort of, we can start way back kind of, you know, ancient history, right? So... Um, origins of mining in Mongolia. Mining in Mongolia has, you know, as all places in the world, really, you know, has thousands of years of history. It's one of the earliest human activity, including for the various nomadic tribes that inhabited Mongolia. Now, the difference between nomadic economies and uh, agricultural and uh, uh, urban-based economies is that um, people measured their wealth and well-being a little they had a slightly different perspective on things so things like gold and silver mining uh, you know the nomadic tribes that inhabited mongolia they only really mined when they needed something they needed a new saddle or uh, the daughter was getting married off or something like that then they would go and mine the necessary amount of silver and gold to make the saddle to make the jewelry and then that was it they wouldn't sit there and mine until all these resources were exhausted so that just kind of gives you the the, the traditional aspect of it, right? So um, because for thousands of years, philosophy was never extract as much as you can and as quickly as you can, you know, that, that is in the background of our history. More modern times, uh, there were, you know, various companies, including Russian, Chinese, American, you, you name it, uh, exploring Mongolia, you know, o- over 100 years ago, 100, 150 years ago. So there was some exploration activity going on at the time. Um, you move into the Soviet times. Um, most of the exploration in Mongolia was done jointly uh, by Soviet and Mongolian government initiatives and Soviet and Mongolian geological teams, et cetera. Um, all of our geologists, mine engineers, you name it, they were, I wouldn't, I guess all, but most likely almost all of them, were educated in the Soviet Union. So they were coming from the Soviet school of you know geology, et cetera. Um, Soviet Union, because Mongolia was not part of Soviet Union, they were not looking in Mongolia for minerals that they had in abundance on their territory. So exploration in Mongolia did not focus much, for example, on oil and gas, literally unexplored. Mongolia has huge potential for that, and, you know, it's a producing country at very low level now, but I believe there are a lot of opportunities for that. Uh, you know, Mongolia is known for huge deposits of coal, for example, right? And, you know, oil is just, you know, ancient organic matter that's in liquid form as opposed to rock form, which which is coal, right? So they, they, they generally tend to associate. Um They were looking for things of military significance like uranium, tin, tungsten, etc. They were also not looking particularly hard for gold. Uh, They were looking a little bit for copper, and obviously we have their Dinet Copper mine, which is, you know, one of the key assets of the country. So modern kind of exploration really started taking place in Mongolia from beginning of this century only uh and what really put Mongolia on the world map was the uh, discovery of the oyutoba deposit which is considered you know right now i believe it's the largest in development copper and gold project in the world and it's it's an absolute you know amazing deposit and it's an absolutely amazing mine uh, the way they're developing it um so uh to kind of put everything in a nutshell Mongolia is probably 100, 150 years behind big, you know, mining jurisdictions like, you know, Australia, Canada, you name it. So if you're an exploration company looking to make a name to find that one deposit that is going to be transformative, that is going to make an impact, you know, on the world stage, Mongolia is certainly one of the places that you should be looking at. Fantastic. And what are some of the?
0: Um, you mentioned the um, Oyu Tolgoi mine. Um, yes, what is what? What are some of the other kind of like generational mines that have been found in the last twenty years? In, in the last fifteen years, um, right now, like what are the top three or four that um, you you think are like kind of examples of the North Star of what there could be more of um, in in the next couple
1: of decades? So the only other one that is a world class deposit is the Tavantaloi. Coking coal deposit, and that is an absolute world-class metallurgical coal deposit. It was actually discovered a long time ago, and I believe one of the majors—I don't remember whether it was BHP. I think it was BHP, but you know, not 100%. They actually had it in their portfolio, and this they decided to walk away from it you know, basically for free. <laughs> and it turned out to be one of the best metallurgical coal deposits in the world. Uh, aside from that, there have been a lot of small and medium-sized mines uh, in things like tungsten, a lot of gold mines, uh, uh, zinc, um, you know, there were big uranium deposits made in the, uh, discovered in the North East of the country back in Soviet times that are, you know, looking to be put into production again, um, etc. Um, uh, but, you know, those are the only world-class ones that are sort of, you know, worth mentioning
0: interesting and in terms of the next kind of generation so to speak in the next you know 10 20 years um do you feel like we'll see a significant number of a significant number of similarly kind of high-class world-class kind of deposits being discovered or do you think we're we when we're nearing the kind of you know um efficient frontier of that
1: yeah look i mean these these deposits don't occur in isolation, right? They are products of specific geological processes that created these amazing structures, right? That they created the potential for concentration of these metals and valuable minerals in, in the same spot. So typically these geological activities happen uh, throughout a region, you know? They don't occur within a couple of square kilometers, right? So, um they tend to cluster within a district. So Tolgoi is most likely a, a jewel in a cluster of other gemstones. It's not even clear that it is the jewel. There might be even be a bigger jewel in that, in that district, in the Southern Gobi copper and gold district. And certainly people are looking at that region you know, with quite a bit of interest. Um, I can mention that uh, you know a gold district uh, was discovered in Mongolia. Uh, and uh, I should mention my friends and colleagues at uh, Erdin Resources, who have done an amazing job, uh, went to the country early, stayed there, stuck there, did their work, and discovered an amazing gold district in Mongolia. It's another company that uh, worth looking into if you're interested in gold. So um, I absolutely believe there will be a number of big discoveries made in Mongolia. Now, the the geological potential of the country is one thing, but also another thing is whether investors will put money into Mongolia to finance this exploration activity, right? Somebody has to go out and discover these deposits. And in that regard, I think perception of Mongolia as a country that is uh, maturing, that is heading in the right direction, um will only improve and the reason for that is again we don't have we don't have high probability of these catastrophic risks right we don't have big risks of ethnic or, or religious conflict uh we don't really have risks of uh being affected by war uh we are to you know, there are, to get to us, you'll have to go through Russia or, or China. <laughs> so there is, you know, there are only two countries that could start a conflict with us. And though the, we have very friendly relations with both of our neighbors uh, and we don't have any border disputes with them. So Mongolia is unlikely to be affected by war, for example. Interesting.
0: So what, what does the early stage financing ecosystem look like um, for Explorer slash junior mining projects in Mongolia right now? H- how does it work?
1: Uh, So typically, uh, you have, you know, Australian, uh, in majority of cases, or Canadian or European mining entrepreneurs coming into the country, either partnering up with locals who have um, exploration licenses, or buying it out or applying anew for exploration licenses, and then spending money on the ground uh, and trying to make discoveries or Working off old discoveries and trying to um, do the exploration work according to Western standards and bring them uh, to a point where it can be financed further towards feasibility and development.
0: Interesting. How many projects do you think exist right now in terms of explorer projects
1: in uh, Mongolia? Like, how many active ones are there? Oh, you know, last I looked, there were, you know, over a thousand exploration licenses. So, you know, I haven't looked at it um, in a while, but a lot.
0: <laughs> and are the main investors for this um, coming from Canada as well, or is it just the entrepreneurs that are coming from Canada? Um, like, like where, where's the kind of capital? Is, it, is Are there local funds that are dedicated towards um, the mining industry? Uh, who are the most active kind of funders in, in this ecosystem?
1: Yeah, so you have kind of various pools, right? The local pool typically consists of local entrepreneurs who have successful corporations, Whether it's, you know, I have a relative who has a a successful conglomerate. Uh, They operate one of the largest retail chains in the country. They have a, a bunch of hotels, a milk factory. I mean, you name it, it's all over the place. And, you know, he decided to go into mining and exploration and invested, you know, some of the capital in trying to make discoveries. And I believe he has a gold project now in Western Mongolia. Um, so that's sort of one type of the story right um because these companies are being run by not professional mining entrepreneurs, right oftentimes they don't follow sort of the the efficient steps of developing a project from you know greenfield to production right um a lot of times they are also facing a very volatile eco- economy and their own financial condition. So um, sometimes there are shortcuts in, in how exploration and various steps of the process are conducted, right? So typically those projects are difficult to say, just to take, for example, on, uh, on, on Canadian or Australian public markets because, you know, they need to be packaged properly, right? And the, the, the components of the pa- packaging are, are not there. Um, so so that's that's kind of one cluster of uh, where, where the money and exploration stuff goes. The, the other cluster are professional mining uh, entrepreneurs who have their own sort of uh, sources of uh, capital. You know, typically they have a couple of success stories in their bag and they're able to, you know, call on to their uh, backers and raise, you know, anywhere from a couple of million to a couple of, uh, you know, 10, 20, 50 million dollars. Uh, to do these types of, of work, and um, they're the ones who are well financed. Uh, they know what they're doing. They can come in and scoop up an asset at a very reasonable price, um, put a little bit of money in the ground, uh, bring it to a stage where you can take it public in Australia or Canada, and you can now you have a public company with a public currency, and you can continue to finance it. Uh, considering that you know the project is successful, you know you can bring it to. Um, um, production uh, and you can continue to grow your portfolio right and uh, there are a number of successful stories like that as well and uh, you know very early on uh, when Ayatollah was the, uh, discovered there was mostly Canadian entrepreneurs coming in uh, but at this point I think Mongolia is, has more Australian entrepreneurs uh, operating than North American ones.
0: Fantastic and in terms of how you've got about crafting your own financial strategy for financing and moving forward on the um, TIN project. I'd love if you could kind of share a bit about some of the decisions you've made and um, ways in which you see that moving forward, please. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, there was a bit of luck involved, you know, when Mogul Ventures was formed uh, 10 years ago, uh, we were first working on a coal project Then the coal did not turn out to be of best quality. Um, So we started focusing on the metals part. Uh, We were also looking to go public in Canada at the time. Uh, And it's it's a fairly expensive endeavor. And also it's quite expensive to maintain a public company. Now, when you have a downturn in the commodities market and prices of public uh, juniors absolutely collapse, then that becomes a liability. You have uh, running costs of operating a public company uh, and you're worth almost zero and you can't raise any money. And that's how a lot of our competitors ended up, you know, becoming insolvent. So we got a bit of uh, luck in that we were not able to go public at the time and we did not go public. So we stayed in private hands for, you know, for the last since, since inception. Now, six out of last eight years have been absolutely miserable in in the commodities markets and particularly for juniors. So for that six years, uh, I jokingly say, you know, we exercised strategic patience, (laughs) basically uh, made the burn rate of the company close, close to zero, just basic costs of maintaining the license and staying in compliance with authorities and didn't do much because we needed to survive First and foremost, and so you know, we did, Uh, we did manage to sell the coal for a little bit of money, and we have been using those funds to uh, reignite our um, technical works, and uh, you know, we have done our phase one and phase two metallurgical studies, which uh, came out positive, and we're doing some additional, you know, technical work now. Fantastic
0: in terms of, we've just spoken about like, you know, the early stage financing kind of ecosystem. I'm wondering in terms of later stage, not financing, but rather exits and like stories of like the exit landscape or kind of like, you know, um, positive anecdotes of kind of uh, success case studies, would you be able to share one or two stories that you've kind of found interesting from Mongolia? Oh,
1: sure. Of, I and, mean, um, probably one of the most, amazing returns made in Mongolia was done by a friend of mine in the former, uh, board member of Mogul ventures, an Australian gentleman, uh, named Michael Hawkins. Uh, he had the, I first met him when he was a head geologist for Anglo American, no Anglo Gold Ashanti. And he, they had optioned out a license that, uh, my brother uh, had in South Kobe he was an uh, area play on the Oyu Tolgoi deposit, and they were doing some work on that. And it turned out there was not much in there. But anyhow, that's how I got acquainted with Michael. Uh, after Anglo Anglo Gold Ashanti, he had uh, joined with some people and started a company called East Asia Minerals. East Asia Minerals acquired a uranium exploration license in Mongolia for probably uh, under a million dollars they had put two million dollars I believe I don't remember the exact numbers. it's been some time but they put a couple let's say a couple of million dollars of exploration uh, into the ground on that project and then I believe within a year or 18 months of acquiring those exploration licenses, they sold the project to one of the major uranium majors for over $80 million. So what's the IRR on that? <laughs> that? That's a
0: very quick timeline um, to you know purchase an exit. In terms of like developing something um, even further, are there any stories of interesting exits um, from later on in the pipeline or later on in the cycle, so to speak, that you that you could share? Uh,
1: look, I mean, you know, there are tons of, uh, yeah, I mean, look, if you have a cash, cash flowing asset, you don't need to, and it's a private company, you don't need to have an exit per se. You could just sit and collect the revenues, right? So there are tons of stories of successful, small to medium-sized operations that generate cash and generate a lot of return for whoever the shareholder or owner of these businesses are so you have you have those and that's the majority of local stories right they, they didn't have big exits on in London or New York or anything like that they're just successful businesses that are generating cash and you know and those entrepreneurs are using the cash and further contributing to the development of the country's economy right Um then you have um, you know story of Oyotogo right the, you had the Canadian entrepreneur, famous entrepreneur, came into Mongolia, facilitated the discovery of this deposit. Uh, it was further entered um, into a joint venture with Rio Tinto. Uh, Rio Tinto operated it through a partially owned subsidiary, um, which is, you know, uh, 34% owned by the Mongolian government. And then just recently, you know, they they announced a decision to uh, shareholder approval to, uh, wholly buy it out, right? So so that's a full cycle from discovery until uh, one of the super majors, you know, buys it out wholly. So, and that entire process, what, took 20 years? Something like that? Obviously. Okay. That's fantastic. Um, in terms
0: of uh, going slightly um, upstream from mining, um, in terms of kind of mineral processing and fact related work, are there any... What are your thoughts on the current projects/slash opportunities in that space? I know one thing you mentioned was tin floating, for example. Um, what are your thoughts on 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 that? Um,
1: because we're going through basically another industrial revolution, right? As, as far as we can see, right. Um, Continued electrification, renewable energy—you uh, name it, uh, electric cars, etc. The portfolio of metals and minerals we need is rapidly changing. Now, mining industry is not known for quick adaptation and change, right? Um, the statistics for exploration of mining are are not that great to be honest you know it takes uh, on average uh, a minimum of 12 years to take it, deposit it and, and make it into a mine right these are long long lead cycle you know projects so when you have a new technology and all of a sudden the world needs uh, mineral abc then you discover that that mineral abc is produced only in four countries because those four countries had the easiest ore to process and had it in somewhat of an abundance and the market was not big enough for people for, to look for it anywhere else and figure out how to you know, create those specific chemicals or metals from uh, raw materials that are more complex. But because now you can have sudden jumps in demand, but supply takes over a decade to catch up with demand, uh, you're going to start getting uh, having to become much more creative. In terms of of both uh, exploration, uh, mineralogy, processing, uh, you name it. Uh, Also, you know, we have been driven into the lull that, you know, after World War II, the world is not going to experience huge geopolitical turmoils like war, etc. That's been thrown out of window as well, right? So now diversity of your supply becomes another concern, right? You may well have a deposit in some country, let's say Russia, that has the best source of a given stuff. But now what? You have no access to it or you don't want access to it. So now different calculations should come into people's mind when looking at resources. It's not necessarily where is the highest grade, cheapest stuff, but also when am I going to be able to take it out? You know, what political risks I'm ex- exposed to, whether my own government is going to prevent me from buying this stuff, whether my c- customers will revolt against me buying the inputs for stuff that goes inside my electronics, right? So you're, you're having to look at um, your supply sources uh, with much greater degree of complexity. Fantastic. Um, and in,
0: in, in, lieu of that, then as we go on this, you know, energy transition journey over the next say decades to half century, um, what do you think some of the core constraints and bottlenecks are, for example, for, for Mongolia to be the kind of like one of the providers of first resource when it comes to, uh, these things, what are some things that are kind of like slowing it down and getting in the way that if unlocked would kind of accelerate the pace, um, Uh, of unlocking that uh, in the future?
1: You know, it's geography, really. You know, as they say, geography matters. Um, Mongolia is surrounded by Russia and China. Therefore, our access to third markets necessarily have to go through either of those countries. The closest seaport to Mongolia is Tianjin in China. And the the Chinese government and the Chinese people were kind enough to um, gift Mongolia a, 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 a chunk of their port in, in Tianjin as sort of the Mongolian, um, you know, peer, if you will. So um, that is really the biggest constraint. Um, so what that creates is that for bulk commodities... Right, Uh, iron ore. I mean, things that are heavy and cheap. China is our market. Russia has abundance of natural resources, so they are unlikely to be market for most of our products. But China, we have the largest consumer of bulk commodities in the world as our southern neighbor, so we are lucky in that regard. But you know, we also have one buyer, so you know, negotiating prices with one buyer is generally a (laughs) harder proposition. Unusual. But again, luckily, China is a centrally controlled economy and in the Chinese decision making uh, with trade in Mongolia, it's not purely economic considerations. And uh, we believe our southern neighbor does want to see Mongolia, uh, you know, succeed in progress. We have friendly relations. So, you know, can we fetch the best prices in the world? No, but can we make money and can we run a profit? We can. And we have a, a relatively reliable buyer uh, uh, for our bulk commodities. Uh, for commodities that are higher in value, such as you know tin, for example, right? It's 23,000 tons per ton. You can really ship it anywhere and you don't need to ship a massive volume. So it becomes a little bit an easier story when... Dealing with material that is, you know, higher value per ton.
0: Interesting. Do you think that there are emerging technologies related to logistics and transportation that may help unlock um, new pathways for Mongolia to sell its um, commodities? I'm, I'm asking a fairly naive question here, but I'm wondering if, for example, there's a company called Zipline, which works on uh, drone delivery for healthcare. Um, I'm wondering, like, do, do you think things that of that of that nature can kind of um, unlock new, uh, you know, routes for trade for Mongolia, or do you think that, like, given the geographic constraints, it's very unlikely that that's the case? And it's like, you know, this is a set market
1: right now, or the new piece of infrastructure that may make new. Yeah, products- so I think for Mongolia, you know, we are energy-rich country that is poor in energy infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing we have to resolve is to create, create the energy infrastructure to be able to take advantage of the energy wealth we have in our country. And this is not necessarily fossil fuels. I mean, we have, I don't know, trillions of tons of coal in the country. And it, we probably shouldn't burn all of it because, you know, Mongolians um, are, again, uh, some of the most environmentally, culturally and historically, some of the most environmentally conscious people. So um, they... If we are able to convert our energy resources, including wind and sun, uh, Mongolia has over 300 days of sun. Most of Mongolia has over 300 days of sunshine per year, um, and create that energy infrastructure, then we are able to process our raw materials into higher value-added products. Uh, it is much better to export, you know, let's say copper cathode, you know, rather than copper co- concentrate, right? Um, Secondly, you have uh, isolated incidents where, you know, you take certain raw materials and we have domestically grown technology that creates it into, a, you know, essentially a finished product that there is a market for, right? And I'll give you an example of a Mongolian company called Basalt Roll. So they have a proprietary technology that takes the basalt rock and converts it into uh, heat insulation that is... 100% organic, natural, not organic, 100%, 100% natural, uh, fire-retardant, uh, non-toxic, and it's made domestically, and it's made from a domestic resource that is in, is in abundance, and it's actually a better quality product. At least, I mean, I'm a no, no specialist, but it seems to be a better you know, quality product, certainly as compared to any other imported material that we see in the country. It's a little bit more expensive because it's, again... It's a higher quality natural product. Uh, it is uh, a little bit more expensive than the imported synthetic stuff, but it's made in Mongolia. Uh, it's non-toxic. Uh, it has all these wonderful properties. So, here's an example that you know we even had you know domestic technologies that were able to convert our raw materials into an entirely new product that didn't exist in the market. Wow!
0: Incredible. I I I love that anecdote. It reminds me of one of my favorite case studies from Mongolia which is the um, Gobi Kashmir company. Um, mm-hmm. I, if I recall correctly, this is a company that was kind of privatized in like the 90s that has mm-hmm. now gone on to essentially being the company that supplies like 20% of the world's cashmere, And it's like a kind of fully, vertically integrated um, entity. Um, it seems like Mong- Mongolia's kind of like got some very thrifty uh, upstream processing companies of that sort. Um, also, when you mentioned the uh, 300 Days of Sun, uh, being in London right now, I, I very much am jealous about that. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I digress. So in terms of uh, big themes for 2023, what are some of the things that you're most excited about for next year? And then actually we were to extend that for Mongolia in particular. What do you think are some of the kind of like big catalysts and big unlocks or projects you'll kind of like see or things that just excite you for 2023 up until 2030, essentially?
1: Mm-hmm. So... Um... Coincidentally, when you know I was just about to jump on this interview and I was uh, logged on already and I was kind of fiddling on my phone, um, I was watching a video of my compatriots um, standing shirtless on the central square in front of the parliament building in Mongolia protesting. Oh, wow. Let's look at the temperature in Mongolia right now. I think it's minus 30 Celsius or something like that. So that's a pretty much normal weather right now. So um, it's minus 21. So we have my compatriots threatening to freeze themselves to death right now, protesting against corruption in the country. And they have been persisting in this protest until they're satisfied that um, justice uh, has been done. So this is what gives me tremendous hope uh, for my country. Uh, It is a democratic country. Voices of the people are heard. There is nowhere to go. There is no crushing of this protest with brute force. It's not going to happen. And there will be changes. And, um, you know, I have big hopes for 2023 in that some of the structural reasons and some of the laws that need to be changed, some of the laws that need to be introduced to reduce corruption and even out the playing ground for all Mongolians um, will, uh, will make progress. And uh, Mongolia is a country that, you know, because I partially live, you know, here in New York and back and forth with Mongolia and, uh, in New York, I see progress every time I go back, whether it's something as little as people stopped throwing garbage in the street, which was a common occurrence 10 years ago. But all of a sudden, people just stop doing it. as a, We as a country, as, as a society, culturally decided, okay, this is, this is stupid. Let's stop doing this. So you know things from that on until to this fight with corruption every time there is progress in the country so politically socially the country will keep on moving forward and it's going to make the business and economic environment uh, less risky and more attractive uh, both to you know domestic and international entrepreneurs so you know I of course it it, it does not um, volatility you know, is the financial definition of risk. And right now we're going through volatile times. But, you know, you need to have struggle. You need to have volatility in order for there to be progress. And uh, I believe that there is going to be progress in the country in 2023. Uh, Globally, you know, the fact that China has uh, changed its policy on zero COVID is going to have a hugely positive effect in the medium term. Right now, obviously, they're going through the pain of having so strongly suppressed the virus to opening it up. So, obviously, you're going to have a period of uh, horrible headlines, but uh, it too shall pass. And China will be where UK and US are now in terms of the pandemic, you know, in a matter of, you yeah. know, couple of quarters probably. And then, you know, it it will allow the Chinese economic engine to provide the the global growth that, you know, we frankly, we all need (laughs) at the moment. Um, And then we have, you know, geopolitical conflict, you know, you have Ukraine more, et cetera, you know, uh, I am hopeful that next year that this conflict will get resolved and it should get get resolved justly. Because otherwise, it, it's not a resolution, it's just a pause. So, um, but, you know, I, I you have to be an optimist <laughs> to be an entrepreneur, right? Uh, they say there was never a successful pessimist. So I'm probably always biased on the optimistic side. But I do feel like it's kind of the darkest before dawn type of a period that we're going through.
0: I, I certainly resonate with that. Um, and I think it's a good segue to, I guess, some of the final questions here, which are somewhat more... Um, expansive as opposed to being centered around, um, you know, investment related kind of things. So the first question is, um, when was the last time that you personally felt um, on unbounded optimism as an individual?
1: When Argentina won the World Cup. Oh, no. Nice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice um, okay, second question is, what is your one piece of advice for folks who are, for example, like myself in their early stage of their career and they're looking to, you know, just do interesting, impactful, and lucrative things um, in the future?
1: What What's what, what one piece of advice you have for those people? I mean, one thing that I would mention that probably is not, you know, beaten and repeated, is the concept of value. No one will assign more value to your work and to your project than you yourself. Everyone else will look at it from a perspective and apply some sort of a discount, some sort of, a you know, um, other perspective. So at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur or as a person... Who is pursuing whatever endeavor whether it's social creative etc you're the one who's creating value so you're the one who's setting the value the price of whatever you're you're creating and i think you know keeping that in mind constantly uh, is is a helpful thing
0: i appreciate that is the idea here um to have a kind of like you know certain level of confidence when it comes to asserting an investment thesis or a kind of, you know, value proposition that you're kind of pursuing inside it? Is it more like being willing to back that or is, is there something else there?
1: Yeah. I think one thing is, you know, sort of the psychological component that you mentioned, but also another thing is that, you know, generally most projects or assets, they're very complex things at the end of the day, right? There are a myriad of factors that go into establishing value and, the comp- components that establish that value, number one, not all of them can be calculated, including your own personal, you know, willingness to work and succeed, etc. cetera. Right? None of that is entered into calculation. And number two, um, some of them are not even conscious. You know, if you, that's why sometimes we say the, the gut feel, the instinct, right? When you're pursuing a project and everybody's poo-pooing and telling you how it's going to fail, but yet somehow you are the only person in the world who believes it's going to succeed. Maybe you're insane, but also maybe you're the only person who possesses the other bits of information inside you that you're not even aware of that give you that confidence, right? And sometimes you're not even aware of it until X post, until you have that success, until you have time uh, when you can sit and reflect w- without having to bust, you know, you're behind uh, 24-7. And and in those days, usually you can hear successful entrepreneurs reflect on their early days and say, you know, now that I look back, you know, this was the real factor of my success or this is where I got lucky, et cetera. So, you know, you, you, you need that kind of removal to understand why at a point in time you actually thought something was worth more than what everybody else told you.
0: So. Okay. Fantastic. I, um, I'm going to try and keep that in mind. I, I, my, I think my dad has a similar um, um, take on things. Um, so I guess that leads to the final question here, which is uh, regarding yourself and your kind of future endeavors. How can listeners get in touch with you if they want to, you know, perhaps take a look at the tin mining projects you're working on right now, or just learn more um, about things? What's the best way to kind of do that? And do you have any calls for action or kind of prompts that you'd like to leave uh, listeners with?
1: Uh, look, I'm... Happy to talk to anyone. Uh, We are transparent. Easiest way to find me would be on LinkedIn. Just look up my name. There are not a lot of people named Jamul Jadamba in the world. As far as I know, I'm the only one. So so look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, Send me an invite to connect and, uh, you know, we can take it from there. Uh, We're a private company. We will be building a website, but it's not ready yet. So, you know, when that's ready, I'd be happy to provide that.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for partaking in this interview, Jamal. Um, And I guess that is it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Have a good day.